0: podcast, episode 84. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hanrity. Hamlet is reaching the end of his encouraging lecture to the players, hoping that their imitations of humanity will be in line with his personal taste in acting. The troops leader has just said that he hopes the company is up to date with such kinds of acting, that they have reformed, and are not the kind of old-fashioned, bombastic players Hamlet so dislikes. Hamlet picks up on this mention of reform and runs with it. Oh, reform it altogether. And let those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them, for there be of them that will themselves laugh, to set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too, though in the meantime some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. That's villainous, and shows a most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it. Go, make you ready. Rather than just taking a few steps in this new direction, indifferently, as the player had said, Hamlet insists that they should reform altogether. And then he moves on to the clowns, perhaps the most notorious improvisers and tricksters in the Elizabethan theatre company, Hamlet insists that those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them, for there be of them that will themselves laugh to set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too. There's a fun tension here between the playwright, Shakespeare, and his feeling that the performer should only play what's written or set down for the actor in the script, and that the performer, who might improvise live and in the moment, Of course, Hamlet's fear is of the kind of over-enthusiastic joker who will laugh at his own comedy in the hope of inspiring a quiet audience to laugh along too, them that will themselves laugh to set on some quantity of, and I love this word, barren spectators to laugh. Bad enough that Hamlet has already called audiences unskillful, now there's another dig in that some of them might be dry and barren in their laughter, or lack of it. It's always worth remembering that this play would have been performed in great proximity to its audience, and more often than not, in daylight. All of these references to the audience are ample opportunities for connection with the live spectators. There are any number of ways to joke with them here, but they would have been right up, almost up the noses of the performers on the stage. For Shakespeare's own audience, there was a very specific resonance to Hamlet's mention of the clown. At the time that we believe Hamlet was written, the great clown Will Kemp had left Shakespeare's company, and no replacement had yet been found. There will be another reference to him later in this scene, but for now, it's no accident that Hamlet addresses his instructions to whoever in the company plays your clowns, as if the actor playing the clown is no longer evident within the company. In fact, there is no clown in this company, nor in the play that they put on. Of course. The play's the thing, and Hamlet finally turns his and the player's, and of course our attention, to the script. He says, in the meantime, some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. It's time to talk about the script, because remember, Hamlet has rewritten some of its lines. At this point in the text, we have a rather lumpy set of thoughts. Hamlet could be drawing the first player aside here to finalise the script that he has amended for tonight's performance, and then, as he does so, perhaps a member of the troupe might make some kind of a gesture or even a funny face, which prompts Hamlet's next line. That's villainous, and shows a most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it. Another comment on the kind of acting that Hamlet doesn't enjoy. Editors who understandably tend to prefer things that show up on the page rather than on the stage, have also suggested that Hamlet is pointing out something in the script. And there was even a tradition of inserting examples of quote-unquote bad acting here so that some performance could have a little turn while the show is being prepared. There's been so much build-up to this performance that it's no bad thing to have a little meta-theatrical enthusiasm before the main event. Satisfied that there will be no villainous acting, as it were, Hamlet dismisses the players, telling them, Go, make you ready. As the actors are leaving, Polonius, Guldenstern and Rosencrantz arrive. Hamlet is at this point as happy to see the awkward trio as he ever will be, and he brightly greets Polonius. How now, my lord, will the king hear this piece of work? Polonius tries to be smart, and he replies, And the Queen, too. And that presently. Not only the King will watch the show, but the Queen will also. And not only that, they are ready to watch it immediately, presently. So Hamlet tells Polonius to inform the actors that it is approaching showtime. Bid the players make haste. Polonius exits to summon the company to their places, and Hamlet is left looking at Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. As ever, there isn't a great deal of spark from either of them. Hamlet presumably has better things to be doing than trying to make small talk with them. And yet, there they are, with nothing at all to say. So he invents a job for them. Will you two help to hasten them? The awkwardness is a little alleviated, and the dynamic duo agrees and then exits. We will, my lord. Next to appear is Horatio. Hamlet actually calls for him. What, Horatio? And the stage directions indicate that he enters here. He might, of course, have appeared a little earlier, but this is where he comes into focus. And he says, Here, sweet lord, at your service. Hamlet's response is, Horatio, thou art in as just a man as e'er my conversation coped withal. Beset as he is with twits like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Hamlet very much appreciates the friendship of someone like Horatio. He compliments him, saying, Thou art e'en as just a man as e'er my conversation coped withal. Horatio is as just, and this could mean honest, decent, fair, or even judicious, as any man he's ever spoken with. Coped here doesn't really mean the sense of suffering and forbearance that we might think today, so much as whatever his conversation encountered but the sense that the conversation with less great men than Horatio is something to cope with is, of course, useful too. Horatio is a good man, and Hamlet is glad of him. The friend is also humble, and he starts to protest, saying, Oh, my dear Lord, but Hamlet cuts him off before he can say anything self-effacing to contradict the compliment. Nay, do not think I flatter. For what advancement may I hope from thee that no revenue hast but thy good spirits to feed and clothe thee? Why should the poor be flattered? Before Horatio even gets such an idea out of his mouth, Hamlet insists that he's not flattering him. Nay, do not think I flatter. He's eager to point out that his feelings toward Horatio are true because Horatio technically has nothing to offer him. There's nothing that Horatio has that Hamlet might want to gain by being nice to him. For what advancement may I hope from thee, that no revenue hast but thy good spirits to feed and clothe thee? What could Hamlet gain from Horatio, who has no source of income other than his charm? Why would he flatter someone who has nothing he needs? Why should the poor be flattered? Hamlet is on the brink of another long set of ideas here, an attack on yet another kind of artifice, and this time it's against flattery, which he very clearly resists. There's something of a pattern to Hamlet's speeches and outpourings of thoughts as we've seen them in recent scenes. He lamented dishonest women in front of Ophelia, who wasn't technically being truthful in the scene, but isn't nearly as dishonest as the other agents at work therein. Then, he's just spoken out against bad acting, with the troupe of players whose work he so admires, so presumably they're good actors. And now, he's talking about false friends and flatterers, with the one true friend and ally he has in this rotten state. I think it's fascinating that Shakespeare has Hamlet pour out these thoughts to and in front of people who represent their opposites. Shakespearean language and imagery is so heavily reliant on opposites and juxtaposed ideas, and here in Hamlet, which is a play so very much about thinking, it's rather brilliant that Shakespeare translates the opposing images from the text into the physical reality of Hamlet's world. It makes for an immediacy and a vitality that can only be experienced, really, in a live performance. But it's very much worth bearing in mind while one reads the play. Hamlet has plenty more to say about flattery, and about his genuine friend, Horatio, and we will continue the conversation in the next episode. For now, true friends, thank you very much for listening, and do be sure to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and the show notes section for this episode, where I'll put in a little fun feature on Will Kemp, the clown, and all the Shakespearean roles we believe he created. I'll speak to you next time.